Hello, and welcome to the Careers by Design podcast. I'm Sharon belden Castingway, Director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today, I'm speaking with Majora Carter, Class of 1988. Majora, to start out, can you tell me a bit about your current professional role? Sure. I am the CEO of the Majora Carter Group, LLC, and we are an economic development uh, engine that's located in the South Bronx in New York City, and what we do is we work to create jobs and increased commerce and revenue development in challenged communities. In your first TED Talk in 2006, you speak a bit about your childhood in the South Bronx. Could we start there since it had such an influence on your career path? Tell me a bit about how that influenced the future. Sure. I grew up, I mean, I grew up in the South Bronx, uh, and I just still live like, two blocks away from the house I grew up in. And uh, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, and that was during a time of tremendous financial disinvestment, not only in the South Bronx, but all over America and, and urban cities. And um, it was a time, in particular in the South Bronx, where folks were literally that landlords were torching, having their buildings torched to obtain, uh, excuse me, to obtain insurance money because there was no other kind of financing coming in. You know, you couldn't get a loan on your home or on your business. I mean, it was it was a really tremendously horrific time, you know, for us. And you can literally see buildings burned down, not being built. Um, the families just literally torn away from where they were, a place where there was an active, you know, thriving, you know, light manufacturing uh, area that created hundreds of jobs, and suddenly they're gone. And so things like that, that's what I grew up in, like literally feeling like we lived in a, um, you know, sort of a wasteland, of, of a ghost town of a former thriving city. And um, so we were also a time when it was there was plenty of, of crime, um, there was, you know, the introduction of, of the particular violent kind of heroin uh, into the streets of, of communities like ours as well. So there was definitely issues with drug addiction and sales, um, low health outcomes, and low educational outcomes. I mean, it was a tough time for folks. So I grew up really trying my best to lead the community, you know, and if that was not all that uncommon either, because in many more status communities to this day, you know, so smart, hardworking kids are taught to use education as a way to get out. As a matter of fact, we're all taught to measure success by how far we get away from those communities. So, and I was absolutely no different. And how did you decide to attend a liberal arts college? What was your path to Wesleyan? I was very interested in creative arts of any kind. Um, but in particular, I thought I wanted to become an actress. I was really just so interested and just fell in love, you know, with the written word and, and seeing it performed and thought that that's what I would do. And Wesley uh, had a great theater program, and it was far enough away from my home, but close enough in case I ever needed my family. So it seemed like it was a perfect place, and actually all the schools that I applied to were roughly in that in that region. And, uh, but I resonated with my absolute first choice, and I applied um, early admission and got it. What do you think Wesleyan's effect on you was? Tell me a bit about your experience here. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I, I went to the Bronx High School of Science uh, prior to Wesley, and so I definitely already had a taste of me, you know, in a fairly multi 
cultural environment. You know, it was predominantly white and then Asian, and then there was very, you know, small numbers. I think probably about 20% black and Latino students. Um, but it still gave me a sense of okay, there's a lot of people living in this world. So that was really good, and they weren't, you know, all they didn't all look like folks from my neighborhood. And I think on some level that was really good to just have that earlier education. And it's still very segregated, absolutely, no advantage much about it. High school was, and I think to a certain extent Wesleyan was as well. Um, however, it's still like just knowing that there was, that your paths were going to have to cross was really important. You know, the other part was having just the, the freedom, especially, you know, for a person who really did view herself, you know, as first a creative soul, um, to have the kind of freedom to see so many other young people just engaging on that path and so fearlessly was a tremendous thing for a kid from the South Bronx to see um, because we were, you know, again, we didn't have too, too many examples, you know, of it. I mean, although folks like the graffiti artists and the folks that really knew, you know, the mediums that they had at the time, which are often with a can of spray paint and a subway car, you know, to create incredible art, um, you know, it wasn't. It's that we didn't see too many of those. We, not that we didn't have great artists, it's just that most of them left the neighborhood. So that was part of the problem. But at a space like Wesleyan, you know, people were just there doing it all the time. So that was a really powerful um, the thing that I still carry with me now, that the act of creativity is, you know, whether it's, you know, on a canvas or on a city street, if you do need to be fearless when you do it because no one's going to give you that permission you have to take it. Tell me about what you were involved in on campus. Did you get involved in the arts community? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, so I started out in theater, um, and then initially moved fairly quickly um, into, into uh, film. Actually, I took it. I was in theater my, all my freshman year and much of sophomore year, and I think that's when I realized, oh, I really wanted to do film. And I actually left Wesleyan for about a year and a half and, and interned um, in New York City and then also went to Brooklyn College there because they also had a really good film program that was much, you know, a lot less expensive than Wesleyan. So I stayed there but ended up coming back to Wesleyan to finish my cinema studies degree and also just to make sure that I got a chance to work with Jane Basinger, who is just, of course, you know, the you know, cinema studies goddess of, of, you know, internationally. And uh, so I wanted to be there for that. So that was an exciting, really exciting time, you know, being there to both produce my own films and also just immerse myself in the art of film, of, of film in general, film studies program. So that was one of the most exciting times um, for me, learning just both the, the art and the craft of film, which is just, I think, still one of the most formative experiences of my life. Tell me about the, your favorite project that you worked on while you were here. My theater projects were so much fun. Um, so I did, I was in a few plays, but uh, some, but some of the things that actually gave me um, the most, uh, let's see, where I really felt like I was a part of a team was actually stage managing and working with directors like you know, Ernie Lasky, who was just incredible, um, and, uh, you know, some of the great actresses, you know, they were all, I was a freshman, of course, and they were all seniors, so Jennifer Flackett, um, Sean uh, Petty, and it just, they were just some of the greatest people ever, and just 
other professionals, you know, then and now. They're still working in the field, which, which you know, I, I read about them every now and then. I'm like, I look about them, like, oh, I do that. Um, so it makes me really happy to see that, you know, they were still following their path and that I got a, I got to be a witness to their work so early on. Um, makes me very, very happy. Um, and uh, But I also did a one-woman show um, where I portrayed Billie Holiday. And, you know, they didn't, there's not that much written about her, so I had to write my, sort of like historical, probably a little, I took some historical, some license with the history about her, her life. I didn't sing at all, but it was more about what made, you know, this incredible, this incredible American artist, um, you know, who died relatively young um, and with such a horrible you know, life story, you know, that how is she able to create what she created? And I don't think anyone's ever been able to do what she's done since then. But some of it absolutely, I think a good portion of it came from just the life that she experienced and she put all of it you know, into her music in this way and created something that, that again, I don't think anyone's ever been able to, to reproduce you know, since then. Right. So tell me about your decision of what to do after you graduated. What did you do right after graduation, and how did you decide to do that? Oh, um, you know, I graduated with a degree in cinema studies and film production, and my goal was to go right back home to New York City and work in the film industry. And, you know, and I did. Uh, most of my gifts were unpaid, and, you know, it was really, really tough, I and mean, there was a lot of gender bias, I think even back then, and, and I just, it was just, I ended up actually getting most of my paid gigs, you know, doing things like reception, and it was a real total pain in the butt, and it had nothing to do with film, but I still would show up on sets and, and do whatever else as I, I could, and was able to finally, you know, find a little bit of, um, you know, money in it, but it was never enough, and it was never close to the, um, close enough to the action for me, and, you know, and I wasn't, and I really did need money. Like, I didn't have, I didn't come from a wealthy family. So I had to start paying bills, <laughs> um, which, was, which was for real. And at one point, you know, I decided that I was going to go back to school and go to the NYU graduate school for film, which at the time was the best film school in the country. And, you know, keep in mind, this is the um, early 90s, pre, you know, video production. You know, now you can shoot stuff on an iPhone, and it's really awesome. Um, back in the day, you shot film, which was incredibly expensive, you know, to buy, to process, to edit, and it was just crazy pants. And so it's not uncommon for, you know, kids my age, basically, to be spending $100,000 on their student film. And I got into NYU, which was great, but I had to defer twice, and so, and after your second deferral, you can't, you have to reapply again. And so I just, instead, knowing that I was never going to be able to come up with that kind of money, ended up um, reapplying to the creative writing program at NYU. And I got into that, which was really awesome. And, um, you know, it was awesome to get in. The program wasn't as great as I wanted it to be, but um, some of it was, was fantastic, but it was just not at all what I expected. But I ended, I did get finished getting the degree, but in the interim, I was living with my parents and not happy in my being there, unfortunately, because it felt like a defeat to have to go back home to the South Bronx. I mean, it wasn't burning anymore, but it was the impact of so much financial disinvestment, you know, so much um, just the, the 
I think the city and the state turning its back on communities like ours and even people in the community just sort of being designed to a life of being, you know, poor and depressed was just, it was an awful, awful place to be. And um, so I would literally, I mean, I slept in my parents' house and then I would leave really early in the morning, come back really late at night, and, and that was fine for me. And it was only when I got into this um, writing program, I was teaching writing through an AmeriCorps program called Writers' Corps, and, and I met one of my team members was this awesome guy who had, you know, in his voice, they started, he and his um, partners had started this um, community development corporation that was using the arts as a platform, you know, to inspire, you know, communities in the South Bronx, and it was all these performances, and it just sounded incredible, and I was like, oh my God, I'd love to go there, come to find out it was two blocks away from my house. And and so I got to meet this, this this you know artistic community, most of them, almost all of them from the Bronx, who had this location in which they could come back and do their work, and it was incredible to be there. And so I started you know going back there. I ran a film festival. Um, you know we were doing projects like do, I actually had my own um, you know art organization on the side, and so we were doing these awesome pop-ups, you know, public art projects. I mean, I was having the time of my life, and this was in the mid-'90s. And by that time, I mean, I took off from my house. I started volunteering there, and then I actually got on staff, and that's when we discovered the city's plan to build a huge waste facility on our waterfront, and that's honestly when I started thinking, you know, what are the arts in the world not going to save us? And that's when I first started getting involved in the environmental and economic, you know, um, you know solutions, you know, uh, idea about reclaiming our community in a way that makes sense um, for us. Because I think we, we could, we, the reason why we were getting these environmental burdens because we were a really poor community, which meant that we had to come up with real economic development to make us less so. And so I was really interested in, in sort of marrying the idea of environmental and economic solutions, you know, to provide a better quality of life for people who live in our neighborhoods. And so that's how I started with, I mean, ended up moving to the Sustainable South Bronx or starting it and then moving it. So tell me about the experience of starting that organization. You know, obviously you had a fair amount of success that's, mm-hmm. you know, well out there in the, in the media. You've talked about it. But I'm curious to know exactly how you made that happen. I mean, from the beginning. Yeah. Um, well, i put it at you right now. I had no intention of starting an, an, another organization. I was very happy, you know, at the one I was at, which is called The Point. And um, my goal was to, was to save it for a really long time. Like, I didn't see any reason to go. And I was happy. I had a level of autonomy. You know, I was able to do my projects and, you know, come up with ideas and, you know, execute them. It was great. And um, but this, back in the late, you know, around 2000, that's when all the city council seats came open. You know, term limits were enacted, and, and that's when I looked at city council for what it is, which is the legislative body of New York, and realized that we never really had any real leadership there. And I thought, oh, in all my naivete, I was like, oh, I'm going to run for city council, <laughs> and um, I did. Um, and you know, started the campaign, and I got to see how disgusting. New York City politics are to an outsider, um, and through a, I'm not even going 
most of it on this podcast. I'm saving it for my book, but was able to um, do this to a bad series of events. Um, I and I was kind of forced out of the race, but it was wonderful because I caught the person who was trying to do it in a lie, who then ended up having to support my organization, uh, or with me moving on. And so I did, and basically that's how Sustainable South Bronx was born. I had to do something, and I needed an, an organization around me so that I can do it. And that was that. So suddenly I was like, oh, all those things I wanted to do and was going to do with this organization, I'm now going to do on my own. And it was just a tremendously wonderful way to do it, to just sort of bring it all together and, um, you know, around environmental and economic solutions and just, just carry it along a path, you know, with a, a level of autonomy that made me very, very happy. Um, nearly killed me because I worked, literally worked myself into the hospital um, from this stress-related um, condition that I probably could have dealt with if I bothered to take some time for myself, but I didn't. And uh, but it, again, it was. I'm not going to say um, you know being in the hospital for days was 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 healthy, but um, I did have a great time, you know, being in those positions and and uh, helping and creating what we did around urban revitalization strategies within the, the um, whether it was working to develop, make sure a park was created or the first waterfront park our community had in more than 60 years or writing and spearheading the development of what would become a $50 million first phase greenway project or um, or starting one of the country's very first and, and still most successful green college job training and placement systems. So all those kind of things really, I, I think, created some wonderful, wonderful movement um, that extended well beyond the confines of the South Bronx. It, it actually spread nationally that this is what we can do in those status communities. How did you feel when you got the call telling you that you had been named a MacArthur Fellow? <laughs> um, uh, utterly shocked. I, I assume like everybody else is. Um, I initially thought that um, they were calling me so that I could give a reference for somebody. Right. And I was really delighted. I was like, oh, but which one of my fabulous people I know? <laughs> and, uh, and I was all psyched about sitting down and talking, you know, beautifully about somebody I knew. And that, and actually, what was really funny is I got standing walking as I walk and talk around my office all the time. Um, uh, Jonathan Stanton said, "Are you sitting down?" And that's when I thought, "Oh, um, I wouldn't have to sit down to talk about somebody else." And that's when I was like, "Oh, this is starting to feel weird." And um, then, so but I did sit down and I closed the door to my office. And, and he's like, "Well, you've heard of the MacArthur Fellows Program, and you know, this year you're one of them." And at first, it was like, whoa, this is incredible. And I started crying because things were really bad at the time, even though I was doing incredible work. Um, I was hardly being compensated for it. Um, and um, then all of a sudden, it, it struck me that maybe because I'm a naturally suspicious person, that maybe this was a joke. And, mm -hmm. and so I said to him, is this a joke? Because if it is, it is an incredibly cruel joke. And I can remember, like it, like, it happened yesterday when he took a pause and I heard him, like, take this deep breath and he's like, my dear, this is not a joke. Wow. <laughs> <He's lying. laughs> it was made me cry even more. Um, 
because I'm sure you've probably heard that before. And, uh, but it really did. It, it changed my life in, in every single way. Um, you know, it gave me more opportunities. You know, I ended up leaving Sustainable South Bronx you know, a little while after that, um, and then after clearing up my finances, fortunately. But it gave us the opportunity to um, start some projects and really just try new projects that no one was willing to pay us to do. And, um, you know, some were great and some were really silly. And, but we got a chance to be, you know, to sort of play out these models for a community economic development that, you know, were, would be considered outside the realm of reality by most philanthropic and or, um, you know, and, and certainly investor looking in from the outside. So that I feel really great about. Um, and it gave me the, the freedom to do that. You won a Peabody for your radio series, The Promised Land. Tell me a bit about that show and how that opportunity came about. Oh, that, that was actually a Wesleyan connection. Um, so when uh, Corporation for Public Broadcasting, I believe it was back in oh, 2009, started you know, looking at public radio and realized, oh, it's really not particularly diverse. And then they decided to do a, uh, a project called Launch, where they were going to look to launch, you know, to more diverse um, talent, you know, ethnic, gender, whatever. And so they, there were a couple of teams that were called upon to locate this talent and to test some talent out. And one of them happened to be uh, Julie Bernstein you know, who also is an Wesleyan alum. And Peabody, she just won Peabody Awards for many of her fabulous radio shows. And so it just so happened that I was on the cover of the Wesleyan alumni magazine during when this happened. And she didn't know of my work at all, but she read the article on me in the Wesleyan alumni magazine and was just like, whoa, she sounds really interesting. And they already had a list of 60 people that they were going to identify that they thought would be interesting, you know, as, as potential radio talent, and I became number 61. Huh, okay. So, <laughs> and so I got to meet the rest of the team, and it was narrowed down to about three people, and eventually I got it. And so we worked t together to come up with an idea that I would want to do, one, and um, that we all wanted to work on. And it was a great, great team, you know, all Peabody Award winners, all, all women, actually. Um, but later on, my husband uh, joined the team along with us, which was fantastic. And uh, we decided to do a team that really would speak to me. Because it, one thing, you know, cause I do a lot of, whether it's you know, public speaking or consulting, and I get to meet more people than most people meet in their, you know, I get well, meet more people in a week just during my average day job than most people can meet, you know, like in a year. It's kind of crazy. It, it really is. And, uh, but, and there are all these incredible, amazing people with these beautiful stories to tell. And they're all trying to build something fabulous here on Earth. And, you know, many of them will work, and there are different ways they're doing sustainability. And I just thought, huh, this could be what a great story to tell. I'd love to be able to tell some of these stories and use this vehicle, you know, the radio show, as a way to do that. And so we called it the promised land because, you know, what they, what everyone was doing was working to build their promised land, you know, right here, right now. And, um, you know, we were really excited. We won a Peabody Award the very first year, you know, we were out. 
Um, unfortunately, we didn't get much more funding after that to continue, but, you know, we still get these lovely, lovely comments, you know, from folks who listen, you know, to the radio show, and they're just like, it was one of the best things ever. And I'm like, I agree. <laughs> I absolutely agree. So, maybe soon we'll do it again. Tell me about your decision to form the Majora Carter Group. Um, well, I... I was having a really hard time in the nonprofit industrial complex, like in particular raising money. Like I, the, I only became aware, you know, of just statistical biases against, you know, women-led nonprofits, and then, um, and you know, add on to that, you know, women of color-led nonprofits. You know, for every something like twenty dollars a man can raise, you know, a female raises about one. And and I was just like, this is this is really bad. And I just thought it was me. You know, and I do think the other part of it is that, you know, since I had one in MacArthur that, you know, I did even before I went to MacArthur, I had I enjoyed a level of international um notoriety. You know, there was a lot of press about me and it was it's because we did some really innovative things. But I don't think that the philanthropic community um, you know, especially for the type of work that we were doing, you know, it, you know, we were working in totally marginal communities, but we were expecting to create commerce and economic development. You know, we, I was not trying to stay an underdog. Like, I didn't want our community to always be struggling. I wanted us to win. And I don't necessarily think that, you know, many um, foundations really saw us, you know, as someone that, sort of fit the profile of what a, a, not, a struggling nonprofit in, from an inner city ghetto should be. Um, and, you know, I think they were used to people constantly fighting. And I wanted to win. And so I literally watched my um, funding, you know, go down each and every year. And, like, I was unable to raise money, you know, through philanthropic channels. And then after a while, I realized that, you know, people will pay me to go and speak. And that's much easier money. <laughs> right. <laughs> they pay lots of money. So, and by the time I left the Sustainable South Bronx, I was able, you know, I was, I was bringing in a third of my agency's budget just doing speaking engagements. And I thought that was crazy. And I knew that the second that this, you know, you know, internationally renowned um, uh, leader was no longer in the the, the, the you know, in the chair position, um, you know, with uh, the same South Bronx, I knew that philanthropy was going to come to their aid, and they did. As a, they didn't have that budget gap at all. After I left, I was like, well, what's wrong with me? So, but I realized, you know what, I can take this, this money and, um, you know, this earning, you know, capacity that I have and do it and, and basically use it for things I want to do. Um, and, you know, do it bigger in different parts of the country and see, you know, how this model can work out. So, and that's what I did. That was in 2008. Tell me, about, tell me about the most personally meaningful project that you've worked on. Uh, gosh, um, like all of them. <laughs> but, um, I mean, they, they really are, but I'd have to say... You know, right now, um, I was able to convince the city of New York to uh, 
consider a former juvenile detention facility that was in my neighborhood, and my dad was actually a, uh, a janitor there back in the 60s and 70s. Um, I was able to convince them once it um, came offline and it was vacated you know, back in 2011 for them to reopen the site, or not reopen the site for a jail, but consider it as a redevelopment site for mixed income housing and mixed use commercial development. And I was able to arrange literally a world-class team of architects, um, planners, and builders, and developers uh, to go after that proposal. And, um, and you know, it was just like everything you would want to see about New York. I mean, our team were, was incredibly diverse, you know, five out of the Five out of six of the um, of the of the um, teams were either minority owned or or women owned or led, and so it was as diverse a team as you could ever possibly imagine. And uh, the city hasn't quite made a decision. We don't, and it was we had a beautiful proposal. I mean, we had more than 200,000 square feet of um, you know, job-creating, economic development, um, about 1,200 units of housing, all mixed income, you know, so the kind of aspirational housing development that's going to you know, raise the bar for what passes for um, housing in our communities and really create more economic diversity, which, of course, raises with everyone's vote. And um, as we know, people are not coming back to our communities because they don't because there's nothing there for them, so we have to create the kind of community they want to come back to. Right. Um, now the city has not de- determined that, um, as a matter of fact, it looks like we're not going to um, uh, win that, but uh, many people in the community are incredibly upset about that because we spent years talking to them about their needs and aspirations, and uh, it looks like the proposal that the city put out there is, is doesn't take any of those things into account. So, you know, I guess it ain't over, so it's over, but um, I'm really, you know, the that, you know, the fact that my dad worked there, the fact that, you know, I know so many people that were in that space, that, you know, it's been such a blight on the face of the community and it's got such potential to be something so great. You know, it, and I, I saw it, like, literally every day, you know, for most of my life. And literally, for the first 20 years of my life, I walked that direction you know, to go past it um, on my way to either school or work. And um, so it, it, it became a, a really, you know, to, to, to see it for what it was and also for the future that it could be, just, you know, it, it does hit me very close to home. What haven't I asked you that's important to know to understand your career? Um... I guess one of the things that, you know, that I think about a lot, um, you know, because, you know, I walk and live life every single day as a black woman, um, and I would say it's a pretty powerful one, and, you know, what does that mean, you know, especially in, in particular around gender, you know, what does it mean to be a powerful woman and how people perceive you? Because I literally, I mean, it happens every single day. You know, when I'm, I'm in positions where I have to, well, I'm in a position. You know, I lead my own organization, I lead my own company. Um, yet, you know, in many of the fields that, that I work in, technology and real estate development, there is not a lot of love for women 
at all. <laughs> and I still have to be like, okay, I'm here, and I'm going to show you why I should have this job or do this work, and da da da. And so, being a woman, you know, in this world, and in a place that is essentially is much more comfortable objectifying us rather than partnering with us, is uh, about, you know, I guess you could make a question out of that. But you know, how do I deal with that? You know, knowing that, like, I can't do anything about being a woman. I mean, I could, but I don't want to. <laughs> um, and uh, I love being a woman, but it does present a whole series of challenges um, in my life. Majora Carter, class of 1988, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Careers by Design, The Interviews. Production by Sharon Belden Castingway. Music by Andrew Santanello. Interested in designing your own career? Check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Wesleyan University website.